You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Eric Bresnitz. I am over the moon to welcome Chef Selassie Atatika to the show. We met Selassie back when we were doing our book, as she is a huge lover of music and makes incredible food. She's on the show today to talk about her world travels, her growing up in New York, her moving back to Ghana, and the incredible truffles she makes under the brand Midunu Chocolates. If you look in the write-up of the show and listen to the end, she shares a special discount code for all the listeners and a place to check out the playlists she makes for each collection of chocolates she releases. And then we dig into the archives for a very nice, very beautiful acoustic performance from Pop, etc. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes here on Heritage Radio Network. watching me I couldn't smell the smoke and now I watch the flames I couldn't push myself to quit oh this dangerous game there's a reason people die out here I can't keep living this way I can't keep living this way oh, I've been running so long these shadows start to feel like home. Oh, I know it's backwards. This gets so long. Can't recall what I started running from. What am I becoming? What am I becoming? Tell me that's enough But I got a hunch I'll be back again Cause even if I could escape I'm paying with something I shouldn't spend I couldn't smell the smoke And now I watch the flames I lock myself out here again Oh, this fruitless game All these people are gonna die out here I can't keep living this way I can't keep living this way Oh, I've been running so long These shadows 
start to feel like home Oh, I know it's backwards Biscuits so long Can't recall What it started running from What it might be Flossie, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you for joining us all the way from Ghana. We appreciate you making the time and so nice to have you on the show. Thanks, Darren. I'm glad to be speaking with you finally. (laughs) I know, I know, I know. I know that we met when you were participating in our book a few years back and I've been following along with everything we're working on. Mm -hmm. So I'm happy we can we can sit down and chat about your life and your food and everything you've been working on. So you're born in Ghana mm-hmm. and you credit your mother as one of your first food influences. What yes. do you remember about her cooking growing up? Why did she have such a big influence on you? Uh, for me, my mom, um, I just, it was amazing how she was able to juggle everything. Um, mom of three and a lawyer. Um, she's actually the first lawyer from her region of Ghana, um, period, not just the first female lawyer, but the first lawyer from her region. Um, it's, um, when we moved to the U S food was one of the main ways that we maintained our culture and our family. Um, Mm. so I think it was probably just mother's day and her birthday were the two days she was not cooking for the family. Um, and she found a way to just like make everybody happy. So in terms of uh, my dad, we always really kind of needed or wanted Ghanaian food because, you know, they would go to Manhattan and they'd be eating sort of lunch, you know, on the move. And then he wanted to have something that was more soul satisfying at home. Um, so she she literally just would come home and just make sure everybody had something that that worked for them. And um, because we were living in New York in the early 80s, it was um, at that time, there was not a lot of spaces and places to get a lot of these ingredients. Um, so she just kind of came up with creative solutions. Um, I know there's a dish in Ghana called kenke, mm. which is a fermented cornmeal. She would actually go and buy cornmeal in the grocery store, um, ferment it in this big bowl container that would sit on the counter for five days. Um, and it's, it's something that's usually wrapped in uh, corn husk. And so she would go to local bodegas, find you know, the corn husk that was meant to be used for tamales. And you know, she would wrap this kenke and, and make it for us from scratch. Um, some of the greens that she couldn't find, she would substitute with collard greens or spinach. Um, so I got to see sort of a a lot of innovation and creativity from her side in terms of like recreating the flavors and the dishes, um, that we, we grew up with. I mean, that's absolutely amazing and inspiring. I can imagine her efforts and her desires to connect you to where you grew up through the taste of the food and having to work with ingredients that didn't exist must have left a good mark on you about how you wanted to hold on to those flavors and eventually share them with people in your life as you got older. Yeah, absolutely. I I think there was one uh, Thanksgiving um, where she actually had to come back to Ghana. And so I was in high school at the time and she was like, you're in charge of Thanksgiving. <laughs> and um, I uh, remember that um, she, you know, <laughs> and she was like, okay, I think the turkey might be too much for you. 
So why don't I go ahead and order, you know, like a turkey or something from, you know, the grocery store deli, one of these <laughs> places. And I don't know why, but she decided it was going to be duck. <laughs> so we sure, had a sure. roasted duck. Um, but there's um, there's a Ghanaian mm. stew or gravy. So it's made from tomato base. It's got garlic, ginger, onions, um, chili. And um, she was like, okay, you're going to make the gravy. You're going to make the rice. Um, maybe you can do some mashed potatoes and, you know, sort of it's always a blend in our house. So something a bit American, something a bit Ghanaian. And so I was in charge. And uh, when I put the food on the table, my brother um, literally took like half a bite and was just like, it's not like mom's. And I was like, oh, what does that mean? And he was like, I can't eat this, you know? <laughs> and um, it kind of slightly <laughs> scarred me, but it's actually brought me back because um, after that moment, I actually decided to like stay in my lane um, and my lane had been doing desserts and cakes and stuff like that. So I kind of decided to just focus on, on mm. stuff my mom was not doing until I, I went to university. And then I also then later joined the UN. And I realized that I wanted my mom's food. I wanted Ghanaian food. It, it was something that was very sort of almost cathartic and therapeutic and very comforting. So I had to start learning how to cook these dishes on my own. Um, luckily, um, you know, it, but it goes back and forth. It's one thing to get older a little bit and um, realize you miss the flavors of your youth. But in growing mm. up, did you find that you wanted American food when you went to school? Did you want to have those flavors or did you have American food and you were like, this is terrible compared <laughs> to the delicious stuff that my mom is making? It's both. I mean, I think um, we did that to a certain Point, and then you're just like, actually, mom's food is really good. So um, I think it was, it, we had a nice mix because when you went to school, you know, we, there was a lunch program. And so we got to eat like sort of American food. But when mm -hmm. we got home, mm -hmm. there were these dishes that just were amazing. I know um, actually to this day, my brother has friends that, you know, come over or we'll meet them. And they're like, oh, is your mom still making this dish? And it was interesting because for them, it was, you know, and like one of my brother's friends, um, yeah, yeah, his yeah, mom yeah. came over and was like, my son has been talking about the spinach dish that you're making all the time. Like, what is in it? You know, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, oh it's, it's, it's a nice exchange. And I think I, we, we had a really nice way of kind of combining everything. Um, mm -hmm. So for even Thanksgiving, you know, we have. Thanksgiving where there's some classic American dishes and then there's some very typically Ghanaian um, components that are on that plate as well. So um, a meal is not never really complete without a little bit of both. So to this day, I'm still in charge mm. of making mashed potatoes. Um, my mom's mashed potatoes apparently doesn't satisfy my brother. So like I'm still the one in charge. Uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah. I love that. I love that culinary tradition that bridges both of where you were born and where you grew up and how it tells the story of your family. It's, it's a pretty unique and amazing thing. Mm -hmm. It's also so, been interesting coming back to Ghana because mm. the versions of the dishes that I am most familiar with are the ones that my mom did. Um, mm -hmm. And she's, of course, adapted them um, for whatever reasons, whether because of flavor, taste, um, access to ingredients. So sure, sometimes sure. when I have them here, I'm like, mm, that's not kind of mm. what I know, you know. <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, there's a, there's a good and the bad. So, for example, there are some dishes that um, if I eat them out in Ghana, they might have a lot more um, oil or they might have a lot more smoky fish or, you know, some mm. specific ingredient. 
And um, of course, your reference point is for me, at least, is is what my mom cooked. And so it's 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 interesting seeing the adaptations that she's made and the flavors that are more uniquely hers um, than maybe more classically Ghanaian. Um, before we moved to the U.S., my family lived in the Gambia for a year. And so, for example, you know, the jollof wars with, with jollof rice, um, mm-hmm. the version she makes is closer to the Senegal and Gambia version than to the Ghanaian version, because while she was in Senegal, she ate it, or we were living in Gambia, she ate that version. And then, you know, so she's, she's um, more accustomed and has taken what she likes from there. You're like, I love this dish. And then you eat it and you go, no, 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 no. Exactly. This isn't right. This isn't my mom's. (laughs) I mean, look, I feel that way with my mom and my grandma's cooking who make very specific, you know, Jewish type dishes of like cholent and things like that. And I'll go Mm -hmm. out and have a different version. I go, no, this isn't right. I'm sorry. You're doing it wrong. (laughs) No, no. Let me get my mom in here. Let me show you. (laughs) So you mentioned you worked for the UN and I know Mm -hmm. you travel the world, but you did move back to Ghana in 2014. Yes. What brought you back? What made you want to go back um, to where you were born? I, for me, um, it was always in the plan. I didn't know when and how or why. Um, and in 2014, it just kind of all the pieces came together. I had started working on um, a mm. project with a couple of friends, and uh, we started doing this pop-up in Senegal. And um, I'd always loved mm-hmm. food and cooking, but um, I had never really put it in my mind um, until I was um, living in Senegal and I had a group of friends and we just said, Hey, let's start a cooking club because at that time um, living in Senegal, a lot of the colleagues, we would go to the grocery store and most of the grocery stores at that time were um, a French chain. And what happens of course, is a lot of the ingredients are imported from France and so, you know, we were commenting that, you know, why do we not right, right. patronize more, um, you know, local ingredients, seasonal ingredients, um, and eat these things and become more creative with it. So we started this group, um, and, um, every month we would get together on a Saturday or Sunday, and then, you know, we would bring out, everyone would prepare something and, um, we would taste it using, you know, what we had agreed were going to be the seasonal ingredients for that month. And, um, there were three of us that mm. were pretty obsessive about it. <laughs> and uh, so every every month we would show up with some, <laughs> some concoction that we'd been spending three or four days like thinking through and like reworking several times. Um, and so finally I said, hey guys, why don't we actually go to the Culinary Institute of America, take this course, spend some time and actually do, do something with this. And uh, the two of them actually agreed. Mm. We went to uh, Hyde Park. It was like a one month intensive and when we finished, um, wow. we were like, we can't just like forget this thing and go back to our day-to-day lives, like working as humanitarian and development workers for, for yeah. you know, various agencies. Let's, let's do something with it so we don't lose our skills. So we started a pop-up in uh, Dakar. And um, the first one, it was like, we had to beg 20 friends to show up, you know? Of course, and, always. And then um, by, you know, three years down the line, actually, it Right. Yeah, of course, I know. <laughs> um, three years down the line, we ended up having you know something where um, it was once a month. Um, within an hour, we were fully booked for sixty seats, and um, it just became something that I felt I really wanted to do more full time. And it was it was ridiculous because I would get into these conversations, and people were like, "Are you still talking about food?" 
I'm like, well, yes, I am. <laughs> um, so the passion that this hobby became something that just kind of took over. And I, at the same time, from a professional point of view, started seeing food as a connector, food as an agent for change um, in a lot of the trips that I was doing and the work that I was doing. Um, and I really started thinking about how food could be um, just something that could stimulate change in society and, and could create economies on its own. So, um, so I, I, I moved back in 2014 and um, started doing pop-ups. And then the pop-ups grew into, um, well, we had menus where really the ethos has always been, how do we highlight local ingredients? How do we make sure that we are adding value to what is um, sometimes maybe forgotten or um, considered sort of like peasant food, if you will? And um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at the end, one of the things that came up was um, cocoa because Ghana, you know, we, we have a lot of cocoa, but people were talking about Ghanaian cocoa, but not Ghanaian chocolate. So I wanted to make sure that at the end of every meal, I did something with chocolate. So I was making these little truffles mm. um, and people started asking for them outside of the menu. So um, in 2015, we decided to actually start a small line of chocolates um, that we offered in Ghana. And... Um, what I decided to do was chocolate being something that most people love and then the spices and the other ingredients that were being used for the menu. I tried to find ways to kind of weed them into the chocolates. And uh, so it was, for me, it was a, it was a platform um, where you could take something that sometimes could be savory and, or um, I would say in, in, in the, in a lot of local food, we put a lot of things together so, for example, the soups, um, we mix proteins. Yes. So there'll be chicken, there'll be fish, there'll be, um, there might be pieces mm. of, of goat in there, all in the same super stew. So sometimes <laughs> you kind of don't really taste the spices or you don't really kind of get that ingredient on its own. Um, but I felt like I could isolate them in chocolate. And so that's what we did. And um, when, the, when COVID came and, and we had to close our kitchen, um, we just decided people can't come to us to eat, but we can send our chocolate to them wherever they are. And that's how um, the chocolates kind of became Mm. a major part of what we do and part of the conversation. Amazing. Well, I want to take a quick musical break and I want to talk about uh, Midunu chocolates and about the growth and also about the chocolate practices in Ghana because it's, Mm. it's pretty complicated and I'd love a little bit of your insight on that. But first, we have a song from the archives here on Saggy Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. That's how it starts We go back to your house You check the charts And try to figure it out And if it's crowded all the how it starts
switch the engine on. We set controls to the heart of the sun. One of the ways that we show our age. And if the sun comes up, if the sun comes up, if the sun comes up, then I still don't want to stand her Trying to get with the plan, and the next five years trying to be with your friends again. You're taking 45 turns just as fast as you can. Yeah, I know it gets tired, but it's better when we pretend. It comes apart. way it does in bad films except the part where the moral kicks in Salesforce into the night. And if I made a fool, if I made a fool, if I made a fool on the road, there's always this. And if I'm sued into submission, Where are your 
If I could see all my friends tonight, if I could see all my friends tonight, then I would see all my friends tonight. If I could see all my friends tonight. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are here with Chef Selassie Atadika, who is the founder of Midunu, which is a pop-up, an institute, and a purveyor of chocolates. And you were briefly talking about how chocolates became a vessel, a sort of a final note at the end of the meal, a way to get people to understand more Ghanaian flavors and spices mm-hmm. and things like that. But chocolate and the the actual cacao production is a big part of Ghana's economy and pretty yeah. complicated and actually government run, which mm-hmm. has had some effect on your business, especially how you run it. Can you give a little insight on the cacao production in Ghana and what it takes to actually get the raw materials? Yeah. So, I mean, um, as I said, when we're having these dinners, people were like, oh, these chocolates are great. Can we have them? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I said to myself, sure, yeah, absolutely. And I'm like, it can't be that hard, right? (laughs) (laughs) If you ask that question without knowing the answer, it usually, the answer usually comes back, it can't be that hard. Yes, it can exactly. Be hard. I was like, well, now I know. Like, now I know why no one else was doing it. <laughs> um, We've never the, seen this before. Why is that? <laughs> the devil is in the details. Um, but um, yeah, so Ghana, you know, in terms of, let's see, I don't want to go too far back, but I mean, cocoa has been or cacao has been a, a cash crop and it's been extracted. Mm-hmm. So in terms of how the government foresaw cocoa, it was like, okay, we're going to sell this and we're going to use that money. For healthcare, we're going to use it for education and you know mm. developing the country. So it was centrally controlled. The plan and and the institution, how it's been working, is that the government provides some amounts of inputs to farmers, who then grow the c- cocoa, and then from there they actually are the first buyers of the cocoa. And um, in terms of, I think some of the positive things has been that there is a standard way of the cocoa being processed. Um, Traditionally in Ghana, it's it's um, the beans um, are fermented in plantain or banana leaves, and I think if we we can talk a little bit about you know in terms of flavor, but the first flavor of any bean or product, I think agricultural product, is a terroir. So the soil mm. wherever it grows is sort of like that flavor that is distinctive from that region. The second layer of flavor for for cocoa, sure. I think, is is actually the fermentation process. So in Ghana, we're using banana and plantain leaves. Um, in Cote d'Ivoire, I think they're using boxes. In some other countries, they use boxes. So each one kind of has its own sort of flavor on top of what the terroir would would offer you. Um, and then uh, so Ghana. The beans are grown by the farmers who then actually, you know, cut the pods by hand. They um, ferment it in the plantain and banana leaves by hand. Um, and after that, they sun dry it. And um, after the sun drying, that's when the mm. government buys the beans back from the cocoa farmers. And um, there's a central price. Um, that central price can be good or bad. So like what happens is in a year where um, the cocoa prices globally are low, the government provides a, a subsidy to allow the farmers a living, um, a lot like cost of living adjustment. Um, but what has happened is also, I think, you know, in a global system, having a controlled price sometimes, you know, has its down, down, downsides um, where they might be trying to make back for a year where the cocoa prices are higher, for example. Sure, sure. Um, but um, the legal framework in Ghana um, has been that um, 
the government body that purchases the beans then has a licensed buying company who purchases it from them and then sells it to other parties. Um, these licensed buying companies are much larger companies. Um, and so what happens is that a artisanal maker, um, a chocolate maker cannot buy directly beans from a cocoa farmer. It's actually illegal. Um, so when I, when I decided to embark hmm. on this journey, I wasn't really ready to figure right. out that I just knew that there was a, a legal restraint and I, I didn't have the energy <laughs> to, to deal with it. So I decided to become a chocolatier no, of course, rather of than course. a chocolate maker. And so, um, we purchased, um, mm. the coverture from a company that's making the chocolate in Ghana here. Um, and who has gone through, you know, all the, the legal process of purchasing the beans at a larger volume. And um, they process it and then we purchase it from them at that point. And I kind of have decided to stay in my lane, which I learned mm. at a young age from my brother. But uh, sure. <laughs> I, um, so for me of as course, a chef, it was like flavors my it's the thing. the duck all over again. Yes. <laughs> so I, I really wanted to do what I do best, which is, is working with flavor. And so um, where the spices are, creating these bonbons and truffles um, and infusing them with the flavors that I had sort of picked up through my travels through the continent. Um, that was what I was good at. And that's what I wanted to mm. do. And, you know, that's, that's where we've been. It's been exciting seeing people um, learning about the spices and the flavors through chocolate. Um, but it's also been interesting doing things that were not, are just not done. So, so in terms of, for example, there's one ingredient, um, it's called Dawa Dawa in Ghana. Dawa Dawa is a fermented locust mm -hmm. bean, um, and it's got a lot of like mm. umami. It's got a lot of kick to it. Um, if you taste it, it actually has a lot of chocolatey notes, almost something like a uh, carob, but it's not carob, but it's got some notes in there. But because of the fermentation process, mm -hmm. it's got a lot of funk to it. And in a good way for me, I think. Um, so the thing that I can maybe associate it with is something like um, when I'm cooking savory food, I feel like it brings in the umami that you would get from um, like an Asian fish sauce. And mm. um, yeah, so, so like it's, it's that, but it also has a lot of chocolatey notes. So it's hard to explain it. But um, so what I decided to do was no, to do. I, I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I decided to put that into a truffle and um, my team were, you know, I'm like, hey, this is what we're going to do. Let's just try putting a little bit. Um, there's two versions that you can find in Ghana. <laughs> one is dry and one is wet. And they literally were just looking at me like, um, chef, this isn't like this. We don't know about chef. this. <laughs> no, chef. <laughs> but they were chef. like, okay, <laughs> all right, we're going to do it. And so, you know, we made it. And um, so with every truffle idea that I have, we go through this, you know, R&D process. So we sit at the table at the mm -hmm, end of the week mm -hmm. and, um, you know, we cut each truffle in half. So I took out the Dawa Dawa truffle and I cut it in half and everyone's kind of like, you know, just looking at me a little cautiously, wondering what I'm going to do next. And so I, I give everybody half and they're like looking at each other. No one wants to say anything. No one's tasting it. <laughs> and uh, they finally, they try the truffle and they're like, oh, oh. Mm -hmm. And it was, oh. I mean, it was, I, I for me, I, I love creating things where there's doubt in the room, but then like the proof is in the pudding, right? So um, mm -hmm. Actually, um, it's now everyone's favorite truffle that like, it's just such a surprise because you don't see it coming. 
Um, and it's so such a savory ingredient um, when we use it traditionally that no one expected to see it in chocolate. I mean, the way that you design your chocolates and also the way that you name your chocolates mm-hmm. is another way, because obviously they know what the ingredient is. And if you say just this is chocolate filled with this ingredient, people might not be as open to trying it. But the mm-hmm. way that you package it is so beautiful and so thoughtful. I don't want to say like it's not sneaky, but it's just it's so <laughs> smart in the Thank way you. that you you present it to people. Because look, let's be honest, like there's a million truffles in the world from like the the mass produced to the artisanal, but mm-hmm. you're doing something different. How do you approach designing each one? I know you talked about the flavors, mm-hmm. but as far as naming it and designing it and working yeah. with the team, um, um, what's a little bit of like the bigger process? Where do you start and how do you get to the final product? For me, I think the very first step is usually what is an ingredient that needs to be loved <laughs> in some kind of way. Like it's mm-hmm. usually like, what is an ingredient that we want to highlight? What's an ingredient that's in season? What's an ingredient that you may not associate with chocolate? What's an ingredient that, um, for example, Dawa Dawa, I started using it because it's, um, it's a traditional food product that's, that's made by women. But in Accra, in Ghana, it's actually kind of shunned. And um, we don't use it a lot anymore. And it's losing... Um, space to a lot of like other sort of synthetic food uh, products and ingredients that are being sold in the market. And so I was like, how Mm -hmm, do I mm -hmm. get people to love this thing? How do I get um, people to respect it? My idea usually is how do I put things that either people are not used to um, in chocolate to give it it just makes it more approachable. So one is kind of like, what is, what is an interesting ingredient, an interesting spice, an interesting fruit that people need to know more about? Um, the second then is trying to figure out um, how should it be framed? Would it go better with white chocolate? Would it go better in a caramel? Would it go better, you know, in, mm. in another type of process? What is another food combination that would work with it? Um, so that's the second part then um, when it gets to naming it, depending on the region, because I try to actually do collections that are covering the continent, Um, not specifically just Ghana. I mean, yes, I have a lot of flavors that come from West Africa, but I'm always trying to kind of share the story of the wider continent. And so um, depending on the region where it's from, um, if there's either someone who introduced me to that ingredient or someone from that country who has just taught me a lot of lessons. Um, I, I end up naming it after that woman. Um, sometimes they're people I know, sometimes they're more aspirational. So for example, we have oh, a, I love that. Um, a chai inspired one. So when I was living in Kenya, I just, I drank a lot of chai. <laughs> and um, so when it came to naming mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. I, um, I, I just knew it was going to be called Wangari after Wangari Muthai, the first, um, I think female um, African woman, well, the first African woman to win a Nobel Peace Prize and her work around women's empowerment and around the environment um, just felt right to me, um, given mm. what we do. Um, meanwhile, there's another one which, um, for example, is a truffle. I love that. That is in the collection that we're having for, val- uh, for Valentine's Day for, for this season, and it's using hawash. Hawash is a Somali spice that I was introduced 
to through a friend of mine, um, Hawa Hassan. And so I just had to name the truffle Hawa. <laughs> so, um, you know, these are sort of the, um, and, and these are sort of the women that inspire I me um, on so many levels, either, you know, personally or through just reading about them and learning about what they do. Um, the last level is sort of coming up with the design. Mm-hmm. So we, um, we use transfer sheets. So like you'll see on the truffles, there's um, different sort of motifs on them. And um, what we do is um, I actually go back to the flavor, the region it's from, and think about, is there a textile? Is there a pattern that needs to be showcased? Um, so, for example, in mm. uh, this collection, we have the um, – we've spoken about the Dawa Dawa. So Dawa Dawa is uh, – you'll get it in northern Ghana, but you'll get it in other mm-hmm. – northern in the northern parts of other west african countries so you'll see it in nigeria where they call it iru um and um so there are different versions of it in each country but you find it mostly in sort of that sahelian part of west africa so what we've done is we've used the mud cloth um as the inspiration for the the beige and 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 brown design that you see on that truffle so Mm -hmm. a lot of the patterns are actually coming from textiles um, throughout the continent. So I just, I feel like particularly with the continent, it's a place where very little is sort of known. And I'm just kind of finding little ways to normalize either our fabrics, our textiles, our, um, names, um, the flavors so that people can just kind of go on a journey, you know, then we work with a graphic designer. We modify it a bit, um, to make it work on a one inch by one inch square, and then, um, yeah, we get it, we get it printed. It's, it's actually cocoa butter. And so when we make the truffles, um, as we're producing the truffles, the temperature from the tempered chocolate transfers the design over. So for me, it's just like a really nice way to add another little touch to kind of share a bit of our culture, to normalize the names, to normalize the patterns, to kind of, um, yeah, to just to, to kind of own that back and, and, and share that. I think in many ways, a lot of people um, don't know a lot about the different histories and cultures in the continent and just kind of just allow these little treasures to share that, that uh, magic. I love it. So you and I met a few years back when we were working on our book because I, I knew about your, your deep, deep love for music. And you've actually partnered with a DJ to create a playlist for your mm-hmm. seasonal chocolates. Talk mm-hmm. to me about some of the songs. Talk to me about how this partnership came to be. So, yeah. So DJ Fui is um, a DJ in Accra. And I think I the first time we met was at a party where literally every single song had me on the dance floor. And I was just like, I just need more of this in my life. And um, music and dance mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. something that lights me up. And um, so I, I kind of just approached him and I said, hey, you know, we're doing this thing. And I just feel that music is part of culture, um, a major part of culture, and how do we bring the two things together? So um, he he agreed, and so what we started doing is every season we kind of come up with um, a theme, and then he and I kind of work together to pull it together. So um, the most recent one was a sort of a um, a dedication to my team. So I actually got the team's favorite songs and then we um, kind of fused it into a playlist that made sense. And so for us, it's kind of like some of the music that we listen to while we're making chocolates or we're having a dinner um, Mm. or cooking in the kitchen. These are the songs that we're sharing. Uh, The one that we did in um, around June was actually sort of a Juneteenth playlist. 
Um, so it was a wonderful collaboration um, where we had songs mm-hmm. from uh, the continent and also from the diaspora that just kind of spoke about freedom and independence um, and struggle. Um, the one we did in um, around Mother's Day, um, actually, no, we did it for um, in March last year. It was a playlist that was um, women from all over the continent. And so it was just amazing female musicians and getting a chance to share that with with people. So we have one that we're working on for, um, hopefully it'll be coming out this March and that's going to be, uh, bringing in songs from, um, actually it's going to be goddess independences in March. And so, um, I wanted to go a little bit old school. So we're doing a theme around, uh, just high life, high life, um, Ghanaian and West African high life. Mm, Amazing. And where can people check out these mixes? Where can they find them? If they want to listen to them while they enjoy the chocolates, yeah. So um, for uh, if you, we have them on both Spotify and on Apple Music. Um, if you look up um, DJ Fui, um, it's F U I, and um, you'll see the playlist there. And um, actually, if, uh, when you get our chocolates this season, we have a QR code in there. When you click on it, there's oh, actually. Uh, a PDF that shares all that information that allows them to to go online and, and listen to it. I would love to share a discount code if anyone would love to check out our chocolates or any of our other products. Oh yeah, um, it would be Snacky Tunes ten to get ten percent off. Oh yeah, um, I love that. Yeah, I we'd love, love to just get your feedback, and I I just really hope that people can kind of <laughs> like. I'm just hoping. Uh, I don't really trust a lot of people that don't like chocolate, so I'm I'm hoping. <laughs> Um, we have a lot of people that, that love chocolate. Um, but yeah, Snacky Tunes 10. Um, <laughs> our website is Midunu Chocolates with an S, M-I-D-U-N-U, chocolates with an S, dot com. Well, Slossy, thank you so much. We appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. And hopefully hopefully we can meet in, in real life one day. I feel like we're inching closer and closer to that. Absolutely. I'm actually planning on coming to, the, um, to New York um, soon, so... I will definitely look for you. And um, actually, no, not you. you're not in New York. You're in California, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, nice. Thank you so much. We have a song from the archives and then a live performance here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network.
This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old-world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We have Chris from Pop Etc. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I wanted to read a quote that you said and read it back to you. I'm quoting myself. I'm quoting yourself. We spent so long writing the new record, not knowing. In the end, what made it come together was distance. Experienced a lot during the making of the record. It's a souvenir of that period of time. Really fitting for what you would say is a four-year process of putting this record together. Let's go back. Where were you four years ago when you started the process of writing hundreds and hundreds of songs for this new endeavor? Uh, I think at that time we were, we'd been a band for a while. I'd been making music for years and kind of got caught up in the cycle of just making an album, touring, going back in, making an album, and not really uh, being patient with kind of uh, my artistic or whatever you want to call it um desires and just kind of we're stuck in that grind and i think we just hit a wall with it and realized we needed to chill for a minute and write at our own pace and not set any kind of deadlines that forced us to end or cut short our creative process a lot of the creative process people will say come from constraint time resources etc uh, and you, you said that formerly your writing process was maybe 15, 20 songs at a time. What did cutting off all constraint do? Was it at first uh, scary or did it feel like you were falling just like through space and time? Or how did it make you feel once you were be like, when it's done, it's done and having no idea when you said that? Yeah, I mean, at first it was just liberating because like I said, we were kind of in that grind and then just to let go of that and say, okay, we're not going to schedule any tours. We're not going to schedule any release dates or anything that would make us finish it. Um, it was just, we felt free, you know, we could just do whatever we wanted, try lots of different things. We weren't thinking about an album per se. We were just writing and making music that we loved. Um, and as time went on, I think it became harder or the fear of never knowing when it was going to be finished started (laughs) creeping its way into the process. Was that like year three or month two? I mean, it's, it's hard to say. I think it was probably, it's roller coaster. It's kind of like in the second week, it probably came up a little bit, but then you forget about it and move on. Um, but I remember it just kind of increasingly, uh, making its way into our, our mind as, uh, we got into that, whatever second or third year of just writing and writing and writing. And you changed the band name, uh, but did you also change the process of writing songs through this? Um, we did 
but it wasn't it didn't coincide with the band name change exactly i mean even as the morning vendors we did two albums and the process mm-hmm. for those two albums was quite different the first one i was kind of just uh a lot of the songs i'd already written by myself and recorded on my own and um and even have a band at the beginning of that album whereas for big echo the second album we had a band and that was more of a band process and so it's it's kind of changed all the time and as a songwriter i've always just wanted to keep trying different things so that was kind of the plan forever just to change the process as it seemed fit and do you feel that you're still a band if you don't have a record out if you're not going on tour did there feel a time where pop etc was more just a concept or kind of an intangible less like something that was a physical thing that you could take out onto the road or, or share with people uh i mean it's it's definitely a band in that when we changed the name, part of the reason we did that is we, uh, one of our members left and the three of us that were left was me, our drummer, Julian, and my brother, John. And the three of us have been playing for a long time now. And the morning benders went through many incarnations, lots of different band members. And these, the three of us have now been the longest that I've ever made music with. Um, and as a result, the band, Pop Etc. as a band, is the three of us, and everything we do goes through all three of us. We all sign off on everything. And it's a very, uh, you know, our decision-making process is very collective. So in that way, it is a band. Um, and how did you feel about going from solo writing, being able to kind of control that, to having a group decision and group input? And how did that change the music? Obviously, different influence, different musical influences... But where do you think that took the songs in both a good way and a bad way? Uh, I mean, I think collaboration really only makes things better. <laughs> so I, there aren't a lot of negatives there. The, the, the hard part was letting go of that control, for sure. I mean, starting off when I made our first album, I wanted to do everything myself. And I got a job at a studio so I could engineer it because I didn't want an engineer <laughs> messing with it. And I started learning how to mix and just all that stuff, you know. Um, and slowly I realized that if you can find people that you trust and bring into your, your circle of trust or whatever, then being able to collaborate with people that you rely on is really the, or that you, um, not only can trust, but are inspired by their ideas as well. That's kind of, that's the best, I think. And then within the collaborate collaboration process of the new batch of songs, when did you feel that the new sound or the new record began to take shape? I mean, I'm not, you can't say like songs one through 40 were, were throwaways, but yeah. where did that begin to enter into the, the sound and f- begin to formalize where you thought this might begin, be the beginning of what comes next? Uh, I mean, there's a couple of things. The, one of the, the aspects that brought it together was really just writing a ton of songs and then listening through them, kind of revisiting them every few months and being like, okay, there's like a certain strand that's running its way through this song and this song and this song. And they weren't even necessarily written close to each other. You know, the souvenir has songs that were written like three years ago and some that were written a year ago, right before the album was released. Um, so that it was kind of gradually being figured out through all those all the songs we are we were writing um the other thing that really kind of made the album more cohesive is i do a lot of the writing and demoing on my own and when we start kind of earmarking songs to say like okay this might make sense for the album then all three of us get more involved and we start fleshing them out and going to the studio and recording everything and 
at that point you start hearing all three of our personalities imbued in the song and that kind of started making the album come together does that make sense it does <laughs> we hear a song <laughs> yeah let's do it uh let's what are you gonna one play of those first songs yeah um i'm gonna do a song called vice from our album souvenir Trying to help you. Say you got answers, you're gonna help me soon. And I know there's darkness in your heart. We're both content to play our parts. That I like no matter how hard I fight It's a hold of me And every time that I Say it's the last Before I know it I'm back It takes a hold of me Right now Something in my blood that makes me cross those lines. And I know there's darkness in my heart, too. But we're both consent to play our parts. Cause you got that vice that I like, no matter how hard I fight. video for vice is pretty food centric <laughs> yeah it is the best thing about it uh is the yolk cutting how hard is it to cut a yolk uh how it's hard to keep it on the thing on the cutting board <laughs> yeah i mean how many takes is it to get the yolk in the way that you wanted it how many takes you yeah mean, while i was making the dish yeah i mean when you're cutting it for the movie or for the 
video. That's different. We're just trying to, we kind of cheated it. You know, we're trying <laughs> yeah. to just get the right angle when I'm doing it for, you know, fried rice or something. I usually get on the first try. What is the inspiration behind, I mean, the song, you know, lightly lines up with it, but what was the inspiration for the food theme and the, and the cooking and the disappearing meals? Uh, we, we were thinking a lot for what the video for Vice could be. And the song's about, you know, addiction or having vices Mm -hmm. in your life. And, um, there's a lot of those things that kind of come to mind that a lot of people have problems with, like drugs or alcohol or whatever. And we just thought it would be not only cliche, but not really capturing um, exactly what we wanted to capture in that song if we were to do something like that because what I was thinking about with Vice and with a lot of the songs on Souvenir is that you can really have an unhealthy relationship to any kind of uh, pattern of behavior and so that goes for things that you think of as wholesome like food, eating, or exercise or something there's lots of things that you can get addicted to that on the surface are healthy, good things or necessary things like food mm-hmm. um, and take them to a, a unhealthy extreme. So we kind of wanted to show that. You talk about being addicted to writing music. Is that unhealthy? It can be. Yeah. In I what, mean, in what way? Uh, in that I have a sense of happiness and fulfillment that kind of hinges on being writing songs and being productive with music. Um, and I hold myself to a pretty high standard. So often like, if I don't write a song for a day, I'll feel like I wasted the day, which isn't necessarily true. <laughs> uh, Mark Mothersbaugh from Devo said the same thing. He draws a lot, and he said if he doesn't yeah. draw every day, he feels like there's like a gaping hole yeah. or, or something emerging out from that that can only be filled by doing the act. Yeah, totally. So how do you balance that for, with life on the road or all the other things that come in and fill the void of being a band along with you know being productive, being creative? Yeah, well, I mean... Being on the road is the hardest part because I try to be productive with writing and doing that. And I definitely start ideas, but it's hard to kind of work on them. You know, the, and the, the workflow is always interrupted by various things. Um, but besides that, it's just kind of finding enough people to work with and enough different projects to work on that you're not always just uh, a slave to your band schedule, you know? So lately I've kind of been producing and writing for other artists and that allows me to not only find homes for all these songs that I write (laughs) every day um, but also just to to get fresh inspiration and see how other people make music and all that stuff is really it keeps it fun and fresh from the collaboration process and the producing process what are some of the things that you've learned from other people that you've incorporated into yourself or began to look at differently through for your own creative process Oh, I mean, everyone I work with is so different. So, and now I'm, you know, I've, I've taken all the parts that I liked from different <laughs> people's thoughts. So I'm a Frankenstein of everything I've worked on. Um, but I don't know. I mean, seeing how certain like engineers work in the studio that are very mathematically minded and how they're honing in on certain sounds and making sure that this buzz isn't there or the way an acoustic guitar sounds isn't. Uh, or the way that an instrument actually sounds in the space is captured to the tape or hard drive or whatever, however you're recording. Um, there's a lot of kind of technical aspects of making music that I didn't initially uh, connect with because I, I always was just a songwriter and I like to just 
play and, and sing. Um, so I've learned a lot about that side of the process through various, you know, engineers, producers, and mixers we've worked with. Um, and I've started to see how you can bring a really creative, artistic approach to things that seem very mechanical and mathematical, you know? Do you find yourself doing something and be like, oh yeah, that's how John <laughs> does it. Or that's how like Matt does it. Or does it just fold in and become part of yourself? I think I've noticed that when I'm first like fresh off working with someone and I'll find myself doing something and be like, oh, that's similar. To... <laughs> but after a while, I mean, it just, who knows? I don't know where any of this stuff comes from. You're influenced by so many things, everything you come into contact with, you know. Can we hear another song? Yeah. Are you ready? I'm very ready. <laughs> What's this one called? Um, I'm going to do, uh, do a song called What Am I Becoming? watching me I couldn't smell the smoke and now I watch the flames I couldn't push myself to quit oh this dangerous game there's a reason people die out here I can't keep living this way I can't keep living this way oh, I've been running so long these shadows start to feel like home. Oh, I know it's backwards. Been scared so long. Can't recall what I started running from. What am I becoming? What am I becoming? Tell me that's enough But I got a hunch I'll be back again Cause even if I could escape I'm paying with something I shouldn't spend I couldn't smell the smoke And now I watch the flames I lock myself out here again Oh, this fruitless game All these people are gonna die out here I can't keep living this way I can't keep living this way Oh, I've been running so long These shadows start to feel like home Oh, I know it's backwards This gets so long Can't recall I started running from what it might be For the new record you built your headphone cave 
Can you explain what that is? Uh, we needed a name for our studio and in our apartment and no one can see air quotes yeah, on the a, radio, yeah. but studio is kind of a studio. I mean, studios, they're changing all the time. Yeah, these, loosely defined. Loose um, but, uh, yeah, we have a, we had a studio in, in two different apartments that I've lived in now. Um, for souvenir was the same one for the whole time, but I moved recently. Um, and we often got noise complaints. So we were all three of us with our headphones sitting around the computer. That's why we called it headphone cave. And what was the setup there? I mean, like you said, studios are so different now. I mean, a laptop is a studio. So what did you do to maybe take it a little bit out of the air quote realm? Yeah, I mean, I started recording on my laptop on the road, and that's kind of what got me into that again, because I'd worked at a studio before, but that was always kind of um, with all their gear. And we recorded our first couple albums to tape. So I was kind of, I learned engineering and that sort of thing from, from a more analog perspective um so when i started recording on my laptop uh it was just a a matter of getting back to uh some of the some of the gear that introduces uh i don't know a more natural or chaotic element to recording um so that meant like getting a more instruments that we could record and play i got a piano for our apartment that we recorded on and some old mics and a couple of pre's and a compressor, a bunch of synths. So was this one done on all laptop or did you move back to tape for this one as well? We did it all on computer. It wasn't a laptop, but yeah, yeah all computers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a certain freedom to that, that we really like now. Um, you know, a tape, it just, I love the sound of tape. I love the kind of natural, compression that you get from hitting tape i don't like the process of recording to tape it's horrible it's so slow anytime you want to edit something it's this whole to do um i like being able to move quickly and if you have an idea not be slowed down or paralyzed by the way you're recording i mean it goes back to the overarching theme for this of no constraint yeah nothing self-imposed just pure creative process so to go back to, to where we started and following the strands, how did you begin to narrow down what became Souvenir? What were some of the more themes that, that jumped out along the way? And, and what was it that took you from the four-year process to say, here we go, uh, now I feel that I'm ready to become a more tangible form of myself? Hmm. Um, I don't know if I've made that, that decision yet. but uh, None of us far- do, but whatever. <laughs> as far whatever. as Souvenir goes... Um, I spoke a little to this before, but part of it was finding the set of songs that the three of us all loved. Hmm. So there are a lot of songs that I sent to them and I was like, guys, this is, this is the one I love this. This is great. And they would write back, eh, not really feeling it. <laughs> Did you get the email? So, I sent it in an email. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why aren't you guys responding to me? Um, that happened a lot. And, uh, a big part of what made souvenir souvenir and what kind of I feel like drives our band at this one is the way that we all curate what we put out. So, um, that was a huge part of it. And then thematically there were definitely, um, a few different strands of kind of, I don't even, it's weird calling them themes, but kind of emotional content that was consistent, um, through a, lots of different songs. You know, there's a few different albums we probably could have funneled songs into. Um, but there was something about the songs on souvenir that, um, all felt 
very close to us um, in terms of what we were going through at that time. And um, I think a process of like in the way we were making music for a while, as I talked about earlier, and we were thinking about this process as a a different um, phase for us. We'd also just lived life longer and we were thinking about our time together and what we had gone through the five or six years prior as a band. And will this process continue for the next record? Will it be another three, four years off of, of Unconstrained? Or do you feel that you've now, do, do you feel that you've now gotten to a new place where the writing process has evolved to the point where it is, at least in this time, something that you could stick to or adhere to and it doesn't need to go out into the wild as much for the next record? I have learned from my mistakes and that I uh, won't promise that it's going to come out <laughs> any time. I don't know if it'll come out sooner or later or whatever. Um, sorry, my guess, sorry, record label. If my, you're listening. <laughs> my best guess is that we do feel there's some momentum to the process that we started and we've written a lot since uh, souvenir came out and we had a lot of songs that we have written in the last couple of years that we've come back to and kind of reinvigorated. Um, so we feel productive. <laughs> <laughs> Non-committal, that's, that's, yeah, that, that's the most commitment yeah. that you can make. Yeah. Well, I want to make sure we have time for one more song. Yeah. Uh, where can people find the record? How can people follow you? Do you social media? Yeah, we're all over <laughs> all this, the <this> stuff. <laughs> find us. Um, we like talking to people on social media. That's kind of the best part of it. Um, oh, you have a good dialogue with the people. We do. Yeah. And it's funny that a lot of artists are, entities on social media do not yeah i feel um, it's like the easiest way i mean i'll put it another way if someone takes the time to it doesn't just to like you but to write you a letter how great is that that someone took the time to do that it's amazing yeah Yeah. and i i always encourage like people will write us stuff about how they use this song and like their wedding or or some event or whatever and i'll be like take a video show like i want to see more of that stuff because that's the side of things that kind of that really motivates us to keep working, seeing that our music's connecting with people and we don't get to see any of that really if it wasn't for social media. And I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I think like having a dialogue is, I mean, is the best part, yeah. especially if you're in a van for 12 hours. Yeah, <laughs> it really helps. <laughs> we want to thank Providence for being on the show earlier. And if you have a moment, please vote for snacky tunes for taste awards, uh, best radio show and best podcast voting closes on December 20th. It's, bit.do backslash st vote this is the last show of the year you are the last guest of the year so honored thank you for doing this we will be having me thank you for being on here this is a wonderful way (laughs) Uh, process is such a good thing to think about going into the holidays especially we have all that downtime yeah and new year's got your resolutions coming up yeah do you have any planned can you pre-plan resolutions i'm gonna try to make less start writing less Stop holding myself to just, unhealthy standards of... You just undid the whole interview. That is unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, uh, but you guys don't know how insane I am. Oh, okay. With that. Fair enough. I want to just lead a more balanced, healthy life. <laughs> balance is good. Let's yeah. go... I'll, how about this? We'll go for balance. Yeah. Okay. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. That sounds yeah. like a good one. Yeah. That sounds doable better than any extreme. Yeah. Uh, what's the name of the last song you're going to take us out? I'm going to go, uh, as we talk about the future, I'm going to go back in time. Oh, perfect. To an oldie um, for us only where i come from uh called excuses okay well thanks for listening thanks to all the people who uh supported us this year and sent us nice notes and as chris encourages please write us we'll write you back we got some time on our hands with the holidays upon us and we will be back next year 
with a whole nother season of Snacky Tunes. Shout out to Darren and the whole family. And uh, Chris, will you do us the honor of taking us out one last time? Okay, here we go. Thanks so much. Snacky Tunes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.